Radio AI. www.radioai.net The public resource for artificial intelligence literacy by the people who do AI. is in two parts. This is part two. Cindy Mason. I've worked on AI and robots at NASA, at UC Berkeley, and at Stanford University. In this podcast, I'll be your host, and I'll be talking about giving robots compassionate intelligence. Why do we want to create compassionate intelligence? Well, to answer that, you might ask another question. Why didn't we do this in the first place? The answer to that could be related to how we define knowledge. What is knowledge? The answer to that reaches all the way back to the Greeks. So, blame it on Aristotle? Knowledge was considered to be composed of only those things that were enduring, like parallel lines or the arrangement of stars or a mathematical proof. Logical thinking was king. This kind of philosophy of what knowledge is underlies our universities, and it has for hundreds of years. Originally, much of AI is based on these same concepts. Rational thought was the way to design AI. At least, if you want to solve a puzzle, that is, or make parts in a factory. But what happens when people are part of this picture, which is where we are now? This alone says, it's time to reconsider. It's time to reconsider what we think knowledge is, what intelligence is. How about the idea of positive intelligence or compassionate intelligence? I like that. It might be crazy what I'm about to say. Compassionate intelligence in a robot means it has a stake not just in itself, in its decision-making and problem-solving and learning and analyzing, but it also has a stake in you. In the first part of this podcast on giving robots compassionate intelligence, we talked about reactive architecture. Reactive robot architectures were considered to be an advantage because they were fast. You may have a stripped-down version of a chassis. You may have really simple sensors coming in, such as a bump sensor or a light sensor, and that goes straight into reacting. That reaction can be as simple as flipping a coin, whether to turn left or right, or whether a random number generator will be between 1 and 4, straight, left, right, or reverse if it can go reverse. Or one in six, if you consider a robot can also go up and down, and it may be able to fly or it can swim. But for now, let's just consider something on land. No big data, no learning, no neural nets, no common sense. It was just sense and react. It turns out you need more than that. In exploratory jobs, such as rescue missions, like going into a nuclear reactor that's had a problem, or a disaster environment where you would not want to risk human life, but a robot could be a hero there. Or you can imagine sending robots or a robot team into exploring a new planet. The trouble is, even though it can be fast to go straight from sensing to reacting, there, there is a bug, no pun intended, there's a bug because you can get stuck in something called a box canyon or a small opening. 
So it could also be like if you're in a hallway and you if you go down to the end of the hallway and it, it's a dead end, you've got a wall in front of you to the left and to the right. So that's like a box canyon. If a robot that has a reactive architecture tries to navigate this, well, it can't. It can only detect a bump, say if it has a bump sensor, and to move in a direction, left, right, or a straight ahead, it sort of flips a coin. At NASA Ames, I had this exact situation. We had a beautiful testbed environment. It was a four-story high building with artists who built these simulated lunar and simulated Martian environments. And we brought in special dirt and dust to simulate these planetary environments. And we had these reactive architectures in our robots that were to do planetary exploration. So unmanned planetary exploration using these reactive architectures made by Rod Brooks's company. We found through these experiments that there were many situations when the robots would be stuck in a box canyon-like situation. In order to cope with this, what we did was we basically duct taped, not basically, exactly duct taped a laptop onto the chassis it continued to use the sensing and locomotion for the robot, but it could then have a more robust navigation system because the higher level thinking or the more sophisticated cognitive architecture that was embodied in the laptop was able to look at planning, replanning, and include the reaction, but have a much more sophisticated cognitive architecture. So it wasn't susceptible to getting stuck. How to build your way out of these shortcomings, as well as building all the way up to a cognitive architecture for compassionate intelligence, is the focus of the remainder of our podcast. It gets a little hairy, so hang in with us. Come up for air if you need it. Now let's look at something a little more complicated. The next cognitive architecture is called a sense-think-act cognitive architecture. This is often found in software agents like Siri or Watson. We need a more sophisticated cognitive architecture than just a sense or react one to have memory, to have learning, to have analysis. What we need is a think component so that before acting, but after we have sensed data, we pass the sensory data into a think component. So the think component is a box that sits in between sensing and acting. With all that that entails, whether that's running statistics, whether that's accessing a database somewhere, machine learning, inferencing, running analytics, or all of the above, all of that can be contained in this one box called thinking. So the architecture now looks a lot like the insect architecture, but we've added a thinking component. We might also consider our thinking component could access the internet. So this machine now has a main cognitive loop that is the following. Step one, sense. Step two, think. Step three, act. Step four, repeat. For the purpose of the cognitive architecture, the type of the thinking component doesn't really matter. It can be a neural net, an ontology or symbolic memory, an archive of numbers. It doesn't matter. It can have representation of knowledge, statistics, or any other kind of advanced AI programming and some kind of memory. We can accomplish a lot more complicated things with this than an insect robot. However, to create compassionate intelligence, we need more. This system we've just described, the sense, think, act, cognitive architecture, it only has a single perspective, its own. It lacks components for interacting with other agents. It lacks any kind of knowledge or representation for itself or others. 
It relies on AI methods designed for rational thinking, not for feelings. It has no representation for metacognition. That is, suppose you have an object like a chair in memory. That's fine. But what we want to know is, how do you feel about that chair? How do I feel about that chair? And can we compare what you and I feel about that chair together? To create compassionate intelligence, we need these kinds of things and more. There are some people who have worked on building systems that can recognize emotions. They've also been working on expressing emotion. This works fine when the only task is to solve a problem. But now that gadgets are surrounding us, we must have more. We need to invent more. So let's take a look at what a cognitive architecture for compassionate intelligence would look like. Remember the architecture we just described? It has a sense component, a think component, and an action component. In addition to these, we're going to add input from users and other agents and sensing that will go straight into a model of self and other and the world. So these sensor inputs go into updating the model of self and others every cycle. And this is then fed into both a thinking and a feeling component. And these thinking and feeling components have a complicated interaction. They can take input from other agents. They can bring in knowledge from the cloud about compassion, culture, social knowledge, interaction, context. And all of this is then and only then brought into a component for action. The action component also includes knowledge about emotion and user output or agent output. When something is delivered to the world, it is not just raw. It has considered different kinds of fonts, colors, layout, tone of voice, etc. All of these things go into considering others and or self when making decisions, when learning, when giving advice. So now let's take a look at the control loop. So the control loop has now five steps. Step one, sense. Similar to the other systems, but now it includes not just sensing hardware, it includes communication with users, other agents, as well as possibly sensing apparatus about user state, in addition to its own environmental sensors. Step two, update internal models. Here we bring in the information gathered in step one. Any new information will be integrated into the models using algorithms or analytics, as well as possibly maintenance routines. These are then used by the next component, which is the think and feel component. Where previously there was a think element, we now have a kind of duplex or a complex element, which has its own subcycle. The think-feel cycle component can involve computations and communications with other agents, as well as metacognition, and it includes many different kinds of thinking and feeling components, possibly accessing social, cultural knowledge, knowledge unique to a particular agent it's working with or a user that it's working with, as well as guiding principles that can be at a higher level that integrates across thinking and feeling components. Each of these elements inside the think and feel component may or may not be computed locally because remember we have access to the net and agents can now talk to one another, name each other, and cooperate. 
Finally, step four. This is the effector part of the robot architecture, the action in the world. It's not just a movement or a light or a voice, but a smart reaction. A smart reaction that's guided from emotionally intelligent knowledge about the user, preferences that impact knowledge about how these colors, fonts, layouts, etc., have emotional impact and guidelines for having a good impact with gesture, facial expression, tone of voice, anything else the the agent has to offer. And last but not least, step five: repeat. So there you have it, the control loop for the compassionate intelligence architecture. This podcast has provided a glimpse of the first steps towards compassionate intelligence in our robots and devices. We hope it will be inspiration for others. This has been Cindy Mason for Radio AI on Compassionate Intelligence for Robots. Thank you. Stay tuned for more cool radio AI podcasts.